Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense attorney uh, based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We're recording this on Monday, May 2nd of 2022. Today we are joined by Mark O'Mara, a former prosecutor and high-profile criminal defense attorney with over 35 years of trial experience. Mark, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, lots going on this week, so let's just jump right into it. First, we have... Um, an Iowa teen was charged with killing their teacher, and he's seeking a juvenile trial. This is out of Des Moines, Iowa. We're talking about Jeremy Goodell uh, is facing first-degree murder charges for allegedly helping a classmate kill their high school Spanish teacher. A really tragic story. The teacher was beaten to death with a baseball bat. Uh, Jeremy was 16 when arrested uh, in the killing of the 66-year-old Nohima Graber, who taught at Fairfield High School. Goodale's attorney presented testimony from a clinical psychologist who had diagnosed him with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I don't, I don't know if, if that is, is some sort of defense that could excuse murder, but we will be following this uh, closely to see. They're seeking a trial in the juvenile system so that he can receive treatment sooner, and it would also mean a very uh, quick release I, I i reports apparently say that within a year he could be released the judge said that he would rule in due course on the request to um, move to juvenile court lots of controversy uh nowadays mark about um cases surrounding the decisions to charge juveniles as adults i know certainly here in los angeles it's become a hot topic can you explain for listeners uh, some of the mitigating circumstances that could lead a defendant um, to being tried as a juvenile rather than as an adult? Sure. Well, the juvenile system is there more for rehabilitation, right? It's to try and get young kids, juveniles, out of the criminal justice system. If you can do that when they're young enough and rehabilitate them, whether that rehabilitation requires some inpatient care, whether even what we used to call juvenile hall, which is a possibility. But the thought is that we're not going to treat them as adults because they haven't matured necessarily well enough yet. So we try and teach them uh, better lessons. The problem with it is that you talked about is that when you start looking at 16 years and up, some people say 15 years and up, when you get close to adulthood, but you're still a juvenile, what do we do? Um, right. And most judges, most court systems in the juvenile systems allow for you to be treated either as a juvenile or the court can move you over to adult court and have you treated as an adult. Massive differences because in the adult system, you go to prison potentially, while in the juvenile system, you may not. And also the juvenile system, they have much less control over you. Sometimes only until you're 19, sometimes only until you're 21. But when you look at all of that and this idea of, you know, let's be good to our children, that's great. But when you look at the bat, you know, baseball bat beating death of a, yeah. te of a teacher, you know, it's horrific and you just want to punish. Yeah. 
Yeah. How how much of a role do you think that plays in the minds of uh, the judge or, or or whoever's going to be making the decision on this, the severity of the crime? And and, and I guess a follow up to that would be, should that play a role or, or should the judges should be basing their decisions just entirely on the defendant? Yeah, and that's really a tough question to answer yeah. for judges, particularly if you think about it, because on the one hand, if if the child's a child, then you want to treat them as a child and you don't want to look and go, oh, they did this wrong. But on the other hand, and I think the way this judge is going to look at this, if you are planning a murder, which seemingly it was, if you have a, you know, a co-defendant, if you're not just, you know, I don't know, ran into him with a car or even shot him one time with a gun. The idea of a beating to death with a bat is that ongoing aggravation, right? We know it in the death penalty world where we look at how a crime was committed as to what your sentence should be. So in that sense, you know, you look at this type of premeditation, and I think a judge is going to lean towards 16-year-old co-defendants planned out uh, and a heinous crime that it may end up in uh, adult court. Yeah, it's so, so, the word you use, heinous, it's it's so true. It's just, we can't wrap our heads around how kids could commit something like this. So his defense team, at least something we've learned is that they're trying to uh, bring up the idea that he was dealing with ADHD or some sort of other uh, diagnosis. They're not saying that he was you know, schizophrenic, something that heavy, but that he was dealing with something. Do you think that plays any role in either this judge's mind or how would that play out with the jury with this heinous a crime, as you said? Well, you know, there are, it's according to different state um, statutes and deal with it. I'll give you an example. In Florida, you are either insane, meaning you do not know the difference between right and wrong. You are not responsible for your actions. Pretty high standard. Um, yeah. It used to be in Florida that you can argue what we call diminished capacity, and they took that away. So before they took that away from a defense attorney, we could say, well, judge, not insane, but he has this issue and those issues. And this is what was going on, whether it be bipolar or depression or like they're trying ADHD. Um, look, when you're ADHD, that does not excuse a crime. So he's not going to walk in and say, I have ADHD or his team won't say he has ADHD, so let him go. But it is what in the realm of what we call mitigation or judge. He did it, certainly, it seems. But here's why. Here's an explanation, not an excuse, but an explanation for how he was viewing life at the time that he did this. We have a lot of cases on the autism spectrum um, where we argue that they though they are sane, it's very difficult to hold them fully responsible for their actions. Right, right. Well, we'll be following this closely. It's a, it's a tragic case. It's a heinous case. Uh, we, 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 will, we will be checking back in to see how things develop in this. Switching gears for a moment, we're going to talk about this case was all over the news. This is the defense for the Brooklyn subway shooting suspect, Frank James, claims that the FBI improperly took a DNA swab. Frank James was arrested in relation to a mass shooting in the Brooklyn subway in which 10 people suffered gunshot wounds and 19 other people were injured. 
The suspect allegedly released smoke canisters before opening fire on a subway car as it approached the 36th Street station. Reportedly, none of the injuries were life-threatening. James had a troubling YouTube channel where he posted bigoted, misogynistic videos and meditations on violence. He made claims wanting to exterminate people, quote-unquote. He also had videos on the war in Ukraine and Will Smith's Oscar slap. Uh, Frank James' defense claimed in a court filing that FBI agents unexpectedly and improperly took DNA samples from Mr. James. He was reportedly questioned in his cell by agents who took multiple, multiple swabs of his cheek for DNA. The FBI claims that no questioning took place and that the swabs were authorized pursuant to a uh, warrant. Attorneys claim they didn't receive a copy of the search warrant until after it was carried out. Okay. First of all, Mark, you know, jump right in. How do you see these allegations by the defense altering the case for the prosecution? Is there any merit to these allegations that, there, you know, this was an improper uh, DNA swap? Well, look, he has inalienable rights to be prosecuted only properly, as do the rest of us. And we hold law enforcement to a high standard. If you're going to get a conviction, I sometimes joke when people ask me what I do, I say I train prosecutors. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I train them because if they don't do their job right, they're not going to get their conviction. And in the same sense, I train cops, right? It's what we do because if they're going to get their, their swab, then they better do it right. Now, it seems as though in a case like this, there's a couple of cover points for the prosecution. One, if they got a warrant, which is not very difficult to do when you have a suspect in a mass shooting, then, then it's legit because once a, a judge says it is based upon probable cause, granted it's got a probable cause has to be there, then the warrant is issued, the cops are acting under the color of that judge to say, go get the swab, you can. But there's another argument. Even if they did not have a warrant, if he is in custody, this idea that we have of this inevitable discovery, meaning, look, judge, we didn't get it yet. Yes, we took his fingerprints off of the glass he had, or yes, we took a swab out of his mouth, but you know we would have anyway. Right. So you can't argue that you know it's, it's thrown out forever because they can go today and get a swab for his mouth and it would be a legitimate search warrant and swab. So the, um, the defense, again, doing a good job of making sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted by the prosecution and the cops. But you're right, it's not gonna change the outcome significantly. Right, yeah, you make a good point and, and maybe helping listeners to understand that sometimes, yeah, maybe it was improper what the police did, but the, the way the law views it is that they were gonna get there anyways. Uh, so there's kind of no harm, no foul, whether or not they got the warrant now or if they get it later, it was most likely that they were going to get a warrant for his DNA, which is funny to me anyways, because it, I, I don't think we're, we're, we're dealing with a case where nobody knows who committed this crime, right? I mean, the DNA seems kind of like an afterthought. It's not like we're trying to prove identity here on, uh, you know, it's not a who done it. Everybody knows who done it, <laughs> um, which is uh, it leads to another question I had for you is that apparently there were many um, uh, 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 security cameras in that subway station, in the subway itself, that weren't working. And do you feel that that will play a role in this case at all? Well, you know, it can because, you know, the rights that we have as criminal defendants is that you only get your conviction if the state 
proves their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Everything. Now, does that mean one camera wasn't working, so that's reasonable doubt? No, of course not. But the more holes that you can poke into a state's case, failure to have video evidence, uh, improper swab of the mouth, um, you know, doing whatever, you know, getting into his YouTube account without proper warrant, any of those things that you can start poking holes in the state's case, either you have arguments to make to a eventual jury someday, or since we know 95, 6, 7% of all criminal cases resolve themselves short of trial, maybe you get a better deal because of what you can highlight as the problems with the state's case. And I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, I, 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 I remember my time as a prosecutor and I used to talk about this in voir dire with jurors is the the CSI effect. People think that everything is captured on on videotape. Uh, there's a satellite. Uh, there was, you know, several eyewitnesses to an event. And, and you have to almost educate people to the idea that, no, maybe we don't have any of that. Maybe I'm maybe all I'm going to put in front of you is one eyewitness to this event. But it is funny how it's not a small thing to say that security cameras were there and that they don't have the video that will play a role absolutely in the jurors minds uh do, you, tell me your thoughts on that have you ever you ever had to deal with that kind of i'm calling it the csi effect with jurors no and, and that is and we call it exactly that as you do you know when you're picking a jury and say look you watch tv and david crusoe i went to high school with him and i remember when then when one of his first shows came out, Miami uh, CSI, and it was like, it's great, but, you know, they, they walk in front of a screen, hit a couple of buttons, and poof, there's the answer. And right. that is not computer forensics in, even in 2022. We've gotten much better, but no, most people who sit around watching, you know, a crime that happens, is identified, is tried, and is convicted in 48 minutes of TV have no idea how difficult it is to both prosecute a case and the, the requirements, the effort it takes to properly both attack and defend forensics, and yet way difficult. Of course, criminal defense attorneys get the benefit of that because if the jury, of course, puts all of that on the prosecutor's shoulders to say, prove it like they do on TV, and generally speaking, as you just said, they don't. Those, those video cameras, should have been working. They should be focused right on him. They should be 4HD perfect with audio. And of course, none of that's true. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can't remember a case as a prosecutor where I had all the evidence I wish that I had. It, you know, you never have fingerprints. No. You never have DNA. You, you, you'd be lucky if you have a, a videotape from across the street that's grainy and you can barely tell what's happening that that's the best stuff that you're heading into it but we but you're absolutely right we we have this world that expects all of that and it's certainly a hurdle that uh prosecutors have to get uh past switching gears entirely let's talk about you know the case that is capturing the the attention of the nation we're talking about johnny depp versus amber heard the 50 million dollar defamation lawsuit filed by depp against Heard for a washington post article she wrote on domestic violence is underway in fairfax virginia Amber Heard is set to take the stand this week, so we'll be watching, and uh, she will be the first witness for her defense when her side of the case takes over. Heard's defense alleges that Johnny's career was in jeopardy due to his own actions before Amber's piece was published. So there's the question of, was the piece even about him? 
I think it clearly was, and then whether or not that actually defamed him or had an effect on his career. The latest testimony, however, revealed that Heard allegedly left a surprise, quote-unquote, on Depp's bed in the form of human feces. So if this case didn't have it all before, now, now we've even got poop on the bed. Uh, public opinion seems to be heavily on Johnny's side. I don't know if you've noticed that, Mark, but how do you think jurors feel given what they've seen so far? If you had to call it, how do you think this thing is going for either Depp or Heard? You know, this fits into what we talked about earlier about CSI effect. This fits into, you know, this is what people love to watch on TV, real TV, right. you know, live, uh, live TV. But, you know, it's this almost facade of, of sensationalism and celebrities all over the place and Johnny Depp, you know, being cute with his quips and Amber Heard, <laughs> you know, once you take away the sort of level of insanity of it, which there's a level of insanity to this case. You know, Johnny Depp was a superstar, made a lot of money, was with Disney. And all of a sudden, if Amber Heard made this up, how horrific is that? Not just for Johnny Depp, but in this whole environment of a Me Too movement where women, for the most part, are finally feeling the ability to say that they've been abused and to get some traction for having said they've been abused, for it to be listened to, uh, you know, go back to the Cosby days, even though that was overturned in some other well-known trials. But now if she was making it up, now Heard has set back the Me Team movement and the domestic violent movement a decade. Because yeah. here's what we're going to hear, um, Josh, two years from now. Oh, she's just pulling an Amber Heard. Yeah. You can almost hear those words being spoken. And it's sad because there are many, many domestic violence victims who are still too afraid to talk about it and certainly go anywhere near a courtroom. And this could have a devastating effect on those women. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you make a really good point. It, it will be interesting to see kind of the reverberations, the re repercussions from this case that are far beyond the trial itself. Um, a question for you. and and. People have lost sight of the fact that this is a defamation case. And um, one question that I thought was really interesting is on cross-examination of Depp, uh, Heard's defense attorney asked him about a video in which he's seen kind of slamming uh, cabinets and he's beating up the fridge and everything else. He's not being violent toward her, but he was asked the question, were you violent that morning? And I thought it was very clever because... We all know that truth is a defense to defamation, right? And domestic violence doesn't necessarily need to include, you know, physical touching another person, right? It could be emotional violence. It could be mental violence. It could be the environment. And I'm curious, do you think, how do you think that could play a role? It, it, could could Heard end up winning even without proving any actual physical violence against her? What are your thoughts? Oh, no, I think you're exactly right. Domestic violence is takes up many forms and shapes. And right. one of the ones that we, you know, we hear about or we think we know when someone says domestic violence is physical violence. And that's certainly one element of it. But there is verbal violence. There is emotional violence, psychological violence. There's even that type of controlling violence. There are some great books out there on domestic violence. I represented a woman and actually used battered spouse syndrome testimony 
on her behalf, it only came about 20, 22 years ago that we would even talk about battered spouse syndrome testimony. And what that sort of suggests is the way that an abuser can beat down, and I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally beat down the defenses of a woman. Example, in that case, very quickly, she threw him out of her house. She comes home from work that night. He has moved back in and everything is in the same exact position where it was when she threw him out. You know, this psychological, you can throw me out, but you can't change it. Right. And also controlling animals, you know, controlling the environment, like you say, everything is exactly the same. So I thought it was masterful to say, well, look, that was violence, wasn't it? Maybe it was against a cabinet or a refrigerator or you kicked a dog bowl, but it was violence, and that's what they have to get to to try and protect Miss Heard from this allegation that there's no direct evidence of physical violence. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot. We, we, we're at the end or close to the end of Depp's case. Do you think he's winning? Do you think he's got enough, or, or is this going to be, which I think, kind of a lose-lose for both sides? Well, it's certainly going to end up being a lose-lose for both sides because by the time we're done here, they're going to, each one of them is going to be sort of the laughing stock. Whichever camp you take, <laughs> the other one is a laughing stock, right? So Amber Heard may never get a good movie role again because she's been outed at whatever those people believe she is. Johnny Depp, you know, the same thing. He always had this mystique about him. Now, now we sort of have an inside scoop, right? The smoking pot or the used to drink a lot or the craziness, or the hanging out with Marilyn Manson and giving him a pill. You know, so that, that almost absurdity, we, we've taken away the curtain and now we look behind it. Um, however, if you ask me today, you know, it's a preponderance of the evidence standing, right? It's just a little bit more than half. Somebody's right. got to win in that court. I mean, somebody's got to lose. It's not this beyond a reasonable doubt or you don't get your conviction. So right now, I think Johnny Depp is showing she's sort of the nutcase, not me. I've owned up to what I do wrong. Let's hear what she has to say. And I feel as though Depp's team is going to make a lot of headway with Heard. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I I think I I don't know if he wins this case, but I see him him re- repairing his reputation. I really do. I know that we've seen a lot of dirty laundry and heard a lot of awful stuff about him. He may not be doing Disney movies after this, but I think that he uh, he he wins in the court of public opinion. But, you know, time will tell. Moving from absurd to more absurd, we're talking about Black China versus the Kardashians. A Los Angeles judge ruled that Kim Kardashian should not be held liable in Black China's defamation claims. The model and former exotic dancer alleges that um, the Kardashians conspired to cast her as a violent abuser of her former fiance, Rob Kardashian, the the brother of the sisters, to ruin her television career. She's seeking $100 million for economic damages, including loss of earnings and general damages for emotional distress. The Kardashians called um, for her reality show, Rob and China, to not be removed after an incident in which China allegedly pointed a gun at then fiance Rob Kardashian's heads. We're dealing again with this kind of domestic violence, but from the female uh, side of things. Uh, she apparently strangled him with a phone cord, a charging cord, hit him with a metal rod, and then 
threw a piece of uh, patio furniture at his head. Awful, awful stuff. The couple was living with Kylie Jenner at the time where the incident reportedly occurred. A motion was, uh, the motion was dismissed from China's attorney to allow China to take the stand because during her testimony, she was upset after being shown a nude photo of herself that appeared in the restraining order she received. The Kardashians allege that the entire case is a publicity stunt by China. Um, in this is my question, <laughs> Mark. In civil cases, um, a lot of dirty laundry can get aired. When have you ever had a client that, for whatever reason, they want to sue, they want to get a restraining order? Have you ever had to advise them that listen? You are in for so much of a world of hurt that this is not even worth it to you to avoid the embarrassment. Don't do this. Have you have you ever been in that spot before? Many, many, many times at different levels, because most people, they believe that the court system is going to finally vindicate them, particularly right. in the domestic violence injunctions or family law or things like this with Kardashian and, and Black China. They think this is where it's good. Well, aside from the so the celebrity sensationalism of it. Most people, maybe not the Kardashians and, and Black China, just believe this is where I'm going to be vindicated. So right. this is where the pound of flesh will come out, right? This judge will tell him that I get paid back for every diaper I changed and every meal I made and every curse I endured. And the dad is going to get paid back for every overtime hour he worked and every bad meal he had to eat. And it's not. It just isn't. What really happens is you throw all your dirty laundry out there on the table and the judge and juries ignore 80% of it because they don't care. And they focus on that five or 10, 15% of does this really show injury? So in your, in the case we just talked about, whether it's the Kardashians or black China, you have to look at it and go, okay, what's really happening here? Um, is, is it sensationalism? Is it just a publicity stunt? Uh, or should we really care about this in a justice system that is already overworked with what might be considered more legitimate concerns? Right. Um, I, I, I'm curious to hear your experience. I know you've handled a lot of high profile clients. I, we have some high profile clients that we handle as well. And and kind of throwing it back to the Depp v. Heard situation that I cannot imagine <clears throat> that Depp's attorneys didn't sit him down and go, listen, this is not worth it. The amount of garbage that's going to come out about your background and your life and everything else, everybody's going to be watching this. It's not worth it to you. But I feel like with these celebrity types, they kind of, they want that moment though. They want that microphone in front of them. They want that camera on them because they feel like that's going to solve everything. What has your experience been? Well, you know, and again, with sort of the high profiles, what we'd call celebrity clients, I, I do think you're right in that they have gotten very used to having no privacy. You know, <laughs> right. Johnny Depp cannot walk down the street and have a cup of coffee without a, a thousand people at him, right? So maybe right. they have a different perspective than you or, you or I have, which is, who cares? It's all out there anyway, whether it's pictures over my back fence or from a helicopter. But what I counsel my clients of is, look, if you do this and, and you're not a celebrity, you know, your cell phone is going to get looked at, your text yeah. messages, your emails, everything you thought, do and said to your used to be lover, uh, but now is your opponent, it's coming out. So when yeah. you said this in the text message or you sent this picture or you did this, 
all of that, quote, dirty laundry is going to come out. And do you really want the intimacies of your life focus in a courtroom when, yeah. when it never goes away? And here's the thing, you know, when, when I started this, court files are court files. You had to go look in a back room of a courthouse to find it. Now, everything that's anywhere in a court file is on public record, which means it's on the Internet, which means that generations from now, they'll look into this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what people don't realize, too, is that court trials are open to the public. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the media is going to be in there or that you're going to have a, a crowd full of people in there. But it does mean that I can go get that transcript of that trial, you know, months down the line. If for for some reason it becomes uh, interesting to people later on. And, and I don't think people understand just how and it's a great part of our system that, that it and is now, that way. Yeah. And now most courtrooms are videotaped as well. So right. not only a transcript, you have live video of, of wandering around a courtroom or whatever it is, or the pictures that are now in evidence are right there. Yeah, it's, it is not the place to enjoy opening up or splaying open your life. It really is. <laughs> no, not at all. I hope I never find myself there. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? So, um, you know, it's Mark at O'Mara Law Group. Uh, dot com or just go www.omerilawgroup.com. That'll get you to me and my staff. Uh, 407-898-5151. Give me a call. This is what we do. Love doing it. Um, and I really appreciate uh, being on the program with you. Great to see you again. Absolutely. It was, a pro- it was a pleasure. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>